The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Uh, Today, volatility continues for stocks. The Nasdaq falling 2%. Losses on the year now at 15%, plus a couple of chip names on the move after reporting results. We'll break down the quarters for Marvell and Broadcom, a key iPhone supplier. Speaking of Apple, the company holding its annual meeting today. A vote on Tim Cook's pay package coming, plus we look ahead to next week's peak performance event, Yeah, we're going to start with stocks. As Carl mentioned, the Nasdaq is lower by 2% now. Let's bring in our Mike Santoli at the NYSE. Mike. Yeah, D, I mean, there's not really a lot of subtext uh, so far this morning in terms of what's driving things. Clearly, uh, the overarching concerns shadowing uh, the market and just, uh, you know, the suppressing on risk appetites that's coming out of the Ukraine situation. What's interesting is if you look at the top names in the Nasdaq, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, NVIDIA, all down 2% plus, essentially a very kind of synchronous sort of uh, percentage decline. Seems like it's all just stepping back from risk, running through the major indexes. And so that's a little bit of a shift. I mean, we had seen Apple, for one, hold up a whole lot better uh, during this whole correction. Uh, That, for one day at least, is not the case. So it does tell you it's a macro market right now couple things to keep in mind. Just the level of stress hormones running through this market, the high volatility index, and also just a lot of anxiety about near-term volatility possibilities as opposed to those a few months out. So everyone's clenched up. Credit markets are starting to soften up and get a little squirrely. Overnight funding markets getting a lot of attention. It doesn't seem like, again, we're at some kind of breaking point, but just a ratcheting up of, uh, of concerns. What I do find somewhat interesting is maximum bullish headlines about crude oil. And yes, it's up again today and it's at the highs, but it's not racing higher. It's having a little bit of a struggle to kind of turn every bit of potentially bullish uh, crude news into much higher prices. We'll see if that's part of this process of the market feeling as if it's priced in the probable risks out there. Like you mentioned, I wonder if you could dig in just a little more into this sort of short-term liquidity stress in Treasury markets, funding spreads. I know it's not uh, anywhere near being historic, but, I mean, where, where should it rank on the radar right now? Well, it's, it's obviously, it's got to be uh, pretty bright and right in front of you, I think, on the, uh, on the dashboard, just because uh, it's the kind of thing that it's very difficult to know exactly where it's coming from. So all you're seeing is the evidence of this heavy demand for safe overnight places to park money. Uh, And obviously you have collateral that's been impaired throughout the banking system through Europe based on what's happening with Russian assets and others. Uh, And so I think that's where uh, you see people kind of just wanting to move to the sidelines or find a location uh, for, uh, for, for cash overnight. So I don't think it's about jeopardizing bank solvency. It's much more an indicator of that risk aversion and that desire to stay out of harm's way uh, in the short term and having to pay up for the privilege to some degree. 
All right, Mike, thank you. Now let's take a look at a couple of earnings movers in the chip space. Marvell beating on the top and bottom lines. Revenue grew 68% year over year, but Q4 profit falls to 6.2 million from 16.5 a year ago. For the full year, losses also higher. Marvell cited cloud, 5G, and auto as strong contributors to the quarter, while adding enterprise networking as a new key growth driver. As for Broadcom, also beat across the board, raised guidance. The dividend gets hiked by nearly 14%. Cloud, again, enterprise, and iPhone demand, major profit drivers. The company's making good on the promise of share buybacks as well, repurchasing $2.7 billion worth of stock uh, out of a planned $10 billion. Analysts pointing to the next Apple deal as another item to monitor D. But the, the real driver across both of these is demand from hyperscalers, the big names in the cloud, and enterprise overall. Um, 5G also adding. But uh, as, as far as the top line goes for both of these names, and they're actually competitive in a couple product categories, that's the driver. Yeah, that demand side of the picture is, of course, offset against the supply side. Uh, John, too, I wonder how much you think that that Apple event we're looking ahead to next week will play out, especially for a player like Broadcom that does, you know, get some of its revenue from iPhone sales. And as we've seen, we've talked about this so much, uh, Apple, see more of that vertical integration on the back of the M1 success. I think this upcoming Apple event, D, not a huge deal for Broadcom because we're expecting to get the iPhone SE update, which is really not the highest volume and certainly not the highest profit and, and uh, profit dollar uh, item. So not necessarily the leading edge components, but carrying some of the chips through from the, the flagship devices, Carl. But that uh, event is going to be really interesting uh, to see what Apple does with pricing in an inflationary environment. They can afford perhaps to be consistent, but there might be a bit of a squeeze um, uh, on the cost side and uh, any indications on what they're doing with software, which is not constrained in this environment. Yeah, I'll be curious to see to what degree they incorporate more in-person activity because on the tape a few moments ago, D, Apple sets April 11th as a return to office deadline for employees mm. on a week where we saw Twitter start to issue some HR memos and, of course, Google earlier in the week. Yeah, I think you're going to start to see the pace of that speed up, especially here in San Francisco. Uh, meanwhile, though, guys, Silicon Valley VC Sequoia disrupting the traditional playbook with its new fund structure. The Sequoia Capital Fund is comprised of public positions in the firm's enduring portfolio companies, which can then be allocated to a series of sub-funds. The proceeds from the sub-funds then go back to the main fund in this continuous loop. Sequoia recently announcing its first three sub-funds, Ecosystem, Expansion, and Crypto. That is a 500 to $600 million dollar crypto fund focusing on liquid tokens. Here with me exclusively is Sequoia Capital partner Roloff Botha. Roloff, it is great to have you in person. Great to see you again. <laughs> I think the last time we saw each other in person was two years ago. Two years ago. I'm glad you bring that up. That was nearly two years ago to the date that you issued that Black Swan memo uh, warning founders at the start of the pandemic of a new economic reality. So I wonder, two years later, with everything going on in the world right now, are we at another similar disruptive moment? What are you telling your CEOs and founders? And how does your new fund structure play into what you guys can do? So the fund structure unfairly enables us to think really long term. And so the advice we have for our founders is similar. 
They've got to see through the short-term fluctuations, the you know, issues around geopolitical stability, threats of war, um, economic uncertainty, what's going to happen with inflation, what's going to happen with employment. These are all uncertainties, but the great founders just cut through that and focus on building for the long term. Like they did during the pandemic. John's got a question for you. Sure. Ralph, good to have you back. Um, I wonder what's happening with just the the texture of deals right now. A lot of companies that have gone, startups that have gone public recently are, are trading at, at lower valuations, you know, worth less than the private capital they raised. So is, is there any sort of uh, shift in the conversation happening at the term sheet level yet or no? The public market clearly is going to have an impact on private company valuations and fundraising. Uh, prices are sticky downwards. It's sort of a term in economics. So I do think the uh, valuations in the private market are a little slow to adjust. But there's a reality that people look at the alternative sometimes of investing in public securities instead of private companies. But again, our focus is on partnering with a select number of founders to build long-term businesses. And so these sort of short-term fluctuations don't really affect our business day to day. That said, Roloff, and this new structure is allowing you to look through things like geopolitical crises and inflation. Are you doing anything differently in the current environment? Are you looking at different kinds of companies? I think the geopolitical climate doesn't particularly affect it. Now, if you, know, um, if you think about our history, we've always partnered with companies at the very earliest stages, at an idea stage, and we want to be with them throughout their company building journey. And the old structure, the traditional VC fund structure, was based on a 10-year closed-end fund structure that artificially terminates the relationship with the founder. And so the Sequoia Capital Fund enables us to partner with these companies for a much longer period. Roloff, where's the, where's the real technical and technological value in crypto that Sequoia sees right now? I mean, we've seen a lot of uh, heat come off of uh, some stocks, Robinhood for one, I guess Coinbase for another. That, that have been driving some of the interest in the public markets. But a lot of times people pay attention to the price of Bitcoin or Ethereum and not so much the underlying technologies that are going to be important. Where's the strategic value that you see carrying through no matter what the price of a given coin might be? I'd say the two broad areas. One is thinking about Bitcoin as a store of value and a sort of money for the internet, if you will, enabling commerce to be a lot more seamless and global in its nature. And the other one is the programmability that you get from blockchain technology that really can drive enormous efficiencies. So when you think about an application like Filecoin, one of the crypto tokens that are out there, they embed the ability to pay for storage as you provide it, and instead of having to do billing and collecting payments after the fact. And so they're real fundamental capability that blockchain enables, and I liken it to the transformational possibility that networking was, that mobile computing was, that cloud computing was, and we're in the early, early innings of this. At the same time, Roloff, it took you guys a little bit longer than your peers like Andreessen Horowitz to see this opportunity and announce that big fund. Um, I wonder, what was your sort of red pill, as Alfred Lin called it, or your aha moment where you and perhaps any of the other partners realized that you had to go big in this space? So we've been investing in crypto for over five years. And last year, 20% of our new investments were actually in crypto or blockchain-related companies. So we've been very active in the space, investing in equity and tokens out of our venture um, and growth businesses. 
But what we heard from the community is that we needed to engage more and, and be able to trade liquid tokens, stake them, engage in the governance of some of these crypto technologies. And so we decided to launch a dedicated crypto fund to enable us to do so. And in this current moment, we've been talking a lot about crypto's role in the Ukraine crisis and sort of feels, as some are calling it, like a geopolitical test. How do you think that Bitcoin and crypto at large is faring, given the opportunities and also some of the scams and confusion that's arising from things like Ukraine's airdrop? You know, any new technology can be used for good and bad. Uh, I think it's always the history of wonderful technologies, and it requires regulation to help us harness the best of those. And so I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to see it have a big impact. And I wanted to ask you while we have you um, about shifting stances in the space. One that came about this week that caused some headlines was Citadel's Ken Griffith. He sort of walked back his skepticism and he said that it's fair to assume that Citadel will begin to engage with cryptocurrencies over the months to come as a first outside investor in Citadel along with Paradigm. What do you think the opportunity is for Citadel in the space? Well, they're a market maker in so many other securities, and to the extent that crypto becomes an important asset class, I think it's, it's imperative for them to be involved in this space. They can't ignore it. John's got a question. Um, Roloff, I wonder what your approach is, if any, to the challenge that we see in semiconductors right now. I mean, geopolitically, that's part of it. Particularly in the U.S. and Europe, there's a renewed interest in investing in domestic production. And yes, there's a lot of uh, hardware and capital involved in that, but also a lot of software when it comes to uh, the drive toward uh, customization and what's demanded as far as, uh, you know, semiconductor designs for the cloud. Are there opportunities in particular that Sequoia is pursuing there, given the structural change that we're seeing in um, what various countries and industries want and need? We continue to invest in semiconductors. We have a long history of investing in semis, and we were the first investor in NVIDIA many years ago. And so it is an area of renewed focus, I'd say. Uh, given our capital structure, we probably focus more on the fabulous semiconductor companies rather than thinking about being involved with CapEx and actually building fabs. But I do think the U.S. will see more fab manufacture in the future. It's very difficult for us to have our supply chains be as exposed as they are today. I want to get back to uh, the fund and how you guys have restructured it. And I wonder if you're looking at sort of the sell-off that we've seen in public markets, a lot of these high-growth names, some of them that you guys were very early in. Do you see you guys taking larger positions in public companies, new positions? You know, we have historically made public purchases from time to time, but that's not our main remit. Our remit is to find out our founders at the earliest stages and to partner with them to help them as company builders along their journey. And so I think that would be our main focus. And the purpose of the fund is to be long-term shareholders. And so, you know, these short-term fluctuations don't yeah. really bother us, honestly. But I, I wonder, are there opportunities for the long-term there are opportunities. valuation compression? We, we have made some public market purchases, because, but only in companies that we know. When we've been involved with the company since the early stages, we feel we know it. We have a board member involved with the company, and we see a dislocation in the public market. We will go in and make a public market purchase. Last question that we like to ask uh, many of our guests. Do you have crypto holdings yourself as Sequoia sort of moves deeper into the space at a personal level yes i don't just because of conflict you know sort of as a registered entity at this point i think we want to be very careful to make sure that what we do with our time serves our limited partners and not ourselves even a bitcoin or an ether though i just find it awkward to trade personally uh, i should focus my mind and energy on doing what's best for our limited partners okay fair enough roloff it's great to have you in person hope to do it again soon thank you thank you carl over to you so 
All right, meantime, still to come this hour, Apple holding its annual meeting, as we said, and shareholders will vote on Tim Cook's pay package. Plus, we'll look ahead to next week's peak performance event. As the Dow still remains down about 500, tech checks just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Let's get a gut check on Apple this morning ahead of two important events for the company. Annual meeting being held today virtually where Tim Cook's pay package is under some scrutiny. And then, of course, there's Tuesday's peak performance event where a new iPhone and iPad are expected. Stock could use a boost down more than 8% since the beginning of the year. We've got uh, both angles covered for you this block. Our new Apple reporter, Steve Kovacs, looking at Tim Cook's comp. And J.P. Morgan's uh, Samik Chatterjee has a peak behind the curtain on Tuesday's event. But let's begin with Steve. Uh, what is the issue behind the comp. Yeah, that's right, Carl. Uh, ISS is really urging Apple shareholders to vote down Tim Cook's uh, equity awards that he's going to get, even if he retires after 2023, about half of his equity awards worth about $38 million. He still gets it no matter what. So so ISS is really saying, hey, he needs to have this tied to performance for that extra bit of equity awards. And they point to, look, look at the ratio of what Tim Cook makes versus the median Apple employee. It's 1,400 times what the median Apple employee makes. Now, there's some caveats to that, of course. Apple has this army of technical support and retail employees that kind of drag that median down. So even though Tim Cook's pay might look a little bit high relative to his peers in the industry for the latest data we have that we're showing here, um, it really is dragged down by that. And you also got to keep in mind, a lot of these guys... They're co-founders of the companies they have, so they already own a ton of stock, and their salaries are lower. Yeah, Steve. Uh, first of all, welcome. Great Thanks. to have you, uh, you know, even more a part of the team. And then it's interesting, isn't it? Like when you talk about comparable CEOs to Tim Cook, I mean, what are the comparables? Is sort of what you want to ask. I mean, this is a company that touched $3 trillion in market cap just weeks ago, uh, has grown tremendously under his leadership. And talk about a tough act to follow. He followed Steve Jobs, and even while he was working under Jobs, managed to build up the logistics operation for the iPhone and everything that followed. So in a way, isn't Apple structured for pay performance? Is this ISS kind of um, doing what ISS does, or is this you think unusual? No, it's not unusual at all. And you've got to look at the performance. The numbers do not lie. Apple shares under Tim Cook during his 10-plus year tenure up more than 1,100%, well outperforming the S&P 500. Went from uh, less than 
just a few hundred billion dollar company up to a three trillion dollar company, as you mentioned. That's all Tim Cook. So, yes, it's not likely to pass, but it is interesting that there is such a push for this and for basically saying we shouldn't be giving Tim Cook these free stock rewards. <laughs> free. Yes, yeah. indeed. <laughs> Speed. Thank you. Uh, let's get more into the stock impact and J.P. Morgan senior Apple analyst Samik Chatterjee. Samik, uh, we, we got this event coming up soon. We're expecting the iPhone SE, expecting the iPad, but also, I mean, the, the chips that Apple designs for devices uh, across the entire product line now, increasingly important. What's the most important thing you hope to get out of this event that's going to be investable? Yeah, no, uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, So I think clearly as we look at next week's event, iPhone SE is a big driver of what we're looking out for. Now, that said, the point you bring up about the vertical integration, I think that's increasingly starting to feed into Apple's share gains across its broad portfolio of devices, be it Mac, be it the iPhone, because the performance is creating a differentiation. So no doubt that's the sort of under the hood sort of differentiation that's driving these devices. But when you look at next week's event, I think the primary one that we're watching for, obviously, is iPhone SE. And I know you uh, you mentioned earlier on this show today, it's not a big portion of volumes, right? We agree with completely. It's about 10% of annual volumes. But the reason it's important, and it's really three reasons I'll give you, uh, the price point is important. It's going to be marketed as the most affordable 5G device. Now, in the iPhone lineup, you look at what's happening in the smartphone market, makes it very interesting at this point, where Huawei doesn't have a phone to sell, you have a, a lot of consumers on Samsung and Huawei devices looking to switch over. And so you put all that together, and the iPhone revenue story is about finding opportunities for growth, or iPhone growth story is about finding opportunities for growth. And you really find Apple continue to gain share or in the smartphone market uh, through these sort of product introductions, right? So again, big takeaway, big uh, watch out for us is the iPhone SE, but I think you're right in that the differentiation really comes from that vertical integration, which started a few years back and is now finding its way through all the uh, devices. Samik, what, what do you expect Apple to do on pricing here? We are in this inflationary environment. They could raise the price at least 50 bucks that one would expect to pay for an, ICE, uh, for an SE or, or whatever else. Do you think they do that? Do they add another tier or storage tier as they have in the past to, to try to uh, justify uh, higher dollar amounts for devices? Or do they hold the line and actually let margins suffer a bit in this environment? Yeah, no, no, good question. I think what we are thinking is about a $399 device. Now, there is the likelihood that you get a slightly lower price point. Um, the SE2, the previous version, gets a price cut, gets marketed at an even lower price point. Keep in mind, when you do the trade-ins on these, they're going to be coming in at about a 399 device, probably comes in at 299 with a realistic trade-in. So these are very affordable 5G phones. Now, does Apple take the opportunity to pass some of the inflation through? We think it's less likely because now if you look at what Apple's gross margins have done on the product side, which they report, uh, Apple's done relatively uh, really well on gross margins compared to what investors expected uh, over the last year or so, even as you've gone through the pandemic. And that does give them a bit more flexibility to really go after expanding the addressable market for their portfolio by looking at a price point that's more sort of amenable to the low to mid-end consumer versus trying to really stick the line on gross margins at this point. I mean, there's always a volume-related 
uh, uh, gross margin leverage that you get that provides some offset as well. If you have success with the product, that's better than anticipated. So keep that in mind as well. But overall, we would think that the pricing strategy remains aggressive uh, uh, rather than sort of flowing through the inflation because of the addressable market that it allows you to, to allows Apple to tap into. Uh, Samik, I wonder, you know, we love comparing phone cycles to prior cycles. And I wonder, are there good analogs uh, for product introduction in an environment where you've seen rapid rises in global inflation and elements of global demand and supply uh, that are artificially cut off? Yeah, no, no, good. Uh, again, good question. I don't think there's an analog when you look at sort of the supply chain constraints that we have at this point, right? There, there have been instances of product delays, et cetera, that, that, that we've seen in the past. But I think with the iPhone SE 3, as well with uh, iPhone 13, you really don't have a similar backdrop in terms of supply chain constraints. I think inflation has been there in the past, and what Apple has done in, on the uh, pricing of the phones has been completely independent again. Uh, you've uh, really gone into a few cycles expecting Apple to raise uh, the price to pass through the bill of material increase. Even to think about the 5G phones when they were first launched, uh, there was a sizable increase in the bill of materials where Apple managed to uh, uh, find efficiencies to drive gross margins higher even with them. So overall, as you look at the portfolio, I think the focus will really be the addressable, incremental addressable market rather than inflation, which could or could not be temporary, but at this point, I think the focus is the addressable market that iPhone SE 3 allows you to tap into. Good morning, Samik. It's Deirdre. I know that most of the focus is on that new lower cost or lower priced iPhone as well as a new iPad. But, you know, some of the marketing materials for this event included an augmented reality effect. Do you think we're going to get anything services wise, even incremental that you're looking for from this event next week? Uh, so typically the big services uh, event is later in the year, right? So we're not expecting anything major in terms of services. No, no, we can always be surprised on that front, but uh, this is not typically the event where you get a lot of services launches. I think on the AR, VR, uh, you could see an announcement, that the, but the device itself is being produced and launched uh, or shipped rather in later this year in the second half. So I think you could potentially get an announcement. Uh, of what the device looks like, but in terms of getting details of pricing as well as when it ships, you might get more of a deferred uh, announcement related to that. All right, Samik, thank you. Samik Chatterjee from JP Morgan. Thank you. Coming up after the break, the impact that cyber attacks are having on the global supply chain as the fighting continues between Russia and Ukraine. We're also keeping our eye on the market, which is obviously a severe leg lower, but within that, a pretty tight range, still within a few points of 4,300. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with Carl Quintanilla, John Ford, and Julia Borston. In just a minute, Julia will break down Disney's move to add a cheaper ad-supported version of Disney Plus later this year, looking to boost subs growth. But first, let's get a news update with Dom Chu. Dom, over to you. All right. Good morning, Deirdre. Here's what's happening at this hour. Stocks are down sharply following the Russian attack on and takeover of the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. Energy is one of the only two S&P 500 sectors that is trading up on the day. Oil prices are also surging back towards 13-year highs set yesterday. West Texas Intermediate is up about 4% right now. Fears of Russian export disruptions appearing to outweigh prospects of more Iranian supply following a progress on a new nuclear deal. And the U.S. economy created far more jobs than expected in the month of February. Nearly 700,000 new positions were created, but average hourly earnings barely rose. Chicago Fed President Charles Evans says the employment report paints a strong picture of the economy despite some of those new challenges. This amount of uncertainty, geopolitical concerns, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what that uh, means. Um, but in terms of the fundamentals for the U.S. economy, I think, I think they're good. Obviously, the inflation situation is what's got uh, everybody's attention. And today's uh, labor report, you know, it's, it's good news. It doesn't really change anything that uh, Chair Powell was uh, sort of uh, pre-positioning the the Fed for the other day. So the jobs report, no real change to Fed plans. John, I'll send things back over to you. Dom, thank you. New cyber attacks, meanwhile, weighing on an already struggling supply chain, hurting profit margins as well. Frank Holland looking at the impact. Frank. Hey there, John. Well, global logistics giant Expedire is falling since the cyber attack temporarily shut down operations. Cowan downgrading revenue and profit forecast for the company. Cyber attacks, they're a major concern for U.S. supply chain operators like UPS. I spoke to them. They say they're monitoring the situation closely. The U.S. supply chain is in a bit of a precarious position, near record rates, but tight labor and rapidly rising fuel costs. An attack on Maersk back in 2017 blamed on NotPet. Yeah, that stopped operations for a week and it cost $250 million or more to fix. The CEO of Werner Enterprises, a trucker for big box stores, says the commodity disruption is already hurting truck production and an attack could create an unprecedented backup. It took Maersk offline for about a week, and so there was really very difficult for them to respond to. Uh, At that time, capacity, there was excess capacity out there, so the market was able to absorb and and pick up some of that slack. Today, the, the entire supply chain is so tight. The conflict already disrupting the flow of key commodities for tech companies like aluminum, platinum and nickel that usually moves by rail. Here in the U.S., container shipping prices already spiking as a lot of that volume moves to water. We'll have to continue to watch for any impact on the supply chain disruption. Of course, U.S. companies watching for any other cyber attacks or cyber threats. Carl, back over to you. Uh, Frank, thanks for that. Uh, Frank Holland, for more on how companies are managing their supply chain amid the crisis, joining us this morning is Flex, Flexport CEO Ryan Peterson. Flexport, of course, a freight forwarding company that reached an $8 billion valuation last month and was a member of CNBC's Disruptor 50 in 2021. Ryan, it's good to see you again. Thanks for the time today. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on. You've been pretty good about trying to keep the market calm when they get too excited about charts that show the number of ships at port coming down or backlogs coming down. Prior to the the geopolitical escalation, what was the situation? Was it getting any better? 
Uh, slightly, I would say. I would say it stopped getting worse. The uh, the number of ships offshore has come way down. But in fact, the uh, port of Los Angeles and Long Beach, the port complex there, changed the rules to make the ships wait out to sea so that their pollution doesn't affect the city as badly. Uh, so we can't really rely on that metric. You want to see instead what's the timeliness of moving the goods from door to door from Asia to the United States. And that's kind of flat at very, very elevated levels, about taking two or three times longer now than it was before the pandemic. All right. So then what have the last 10 days done to that whole dynamic? Yeah, it's, it has it has come down a little bit. So we reached like about 115 days door to door transit time, which is really pretty terrible when you think about it. it only takes about 15 days to cross the ocean. Uh, and it's it's back down to around 100 days right now. So it's, it's getting a little bit better, but we're not celebrating that. It's pretty high metric. Ryan, tell us a little bit about these humanitarian relief efforts that you're undertaking. You've got a lot of corporations, investors uh, to give money. I think Chamath Palihapitiya just donated. How much have you been able to supply and how are you overcoming some of these logistical challenges? Yeah, and so um, we have an impact arm at Flexport called Flexport.org where we do humanitarian relief operations. We've, par- we've partnered with the United Nations, uh, UNICEF, and a handful of other really established aid organizations. And we're providing both coordination, so what's needed on the ground at these refugee sites in Poland and Eastern Europe, uh, with what's available. You know, we actually see almost a shopping list from these camps and then go back to either corporate partners or, uh, or other aid organizations to find those goods, and we manage the delivery. Of course, air freight's very expensive, so Chamath donated some money, as you said. Also, we're really proud of um, FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange, made a really generous donation and is organizing crypto donations for yeah. the campaign. So we're going to try to raise as much money as we can to pay for flights over there to move these goods and, and help people in need. I wonder, how do you judge the role of crypto in this crisis? And I know recently you said on Twitter, someone asked you if you were holding any crypto on your balance sheet. You said it wasn't zero. Uh, if you won't tell us, email, can you tell us any more color around that, why you decided to do so, and also why you're sort of leaning into it in terms of humanitarian efforts? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think crypto is a really uh, incredible technology for the world and, and, uh, and a good asset that we should have a diverse balance sheet. We've got over a billion dollars in liquid assets on our balance sheet at Flexport. We, we believe very much in that principle of having a fortress-like balance sheet to ride out things like geopolitical crises and stock markets going down. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, and I think crypto is an important part of that. So we sort of see it as diversification of Are you assets. willing to tell us how much in Bitcoin? I uh, can't That's share that right okay. now. Carl's got a question. Hey, Ryan, um, you know, we paid close attention to some of the guidance from Maersk earlier in the year prior to uh, the Russian invasion and sort of their view of how things were going to, as you say, normalize a little bit. Now they're they're going to halt. I mean, they have said they're going to be halting uh, shipments to and from Russia. Where do you think that supply goes? Uh, You know, there's not a huge amount of container shipping. Russia's main exports are sort of bulk commodities, liquid fuel, things that go on either uh, liquid natural gas or pipelines or uh, tankers. So I I don't think it's really, really material in terms of volumes. I think it's going to have a huge impact on the Russian consumer because containers are mostly used for imported goods of consumer goods. So it's definitely I'm not going to say it's not without impact, but I wouldn't suspect that alone leads to a meaningful difference in the, the availability of container shipping supply. A bigger deal is probably the air freight. Russia and Ukraine are major players in the air freight market, uh, and those planes being taken out of rotation are going to be a, a really material difference to the amount of air freight capacity in the world, and I think you're going to see an elevated prices on that. Uh, Ryan, finally, you're 
big part of the tech community here in San Francisco, and you see a lot of companies um, increasingly so taking stands in Russia, uh, you know, suspending their services there, like Google, Airbnb, a number of others. Um, what are you guys doing in terms of your business there, and what do you think about this sort of ethical stance that tech companies are now taking. Yeah, well, Flexport doesn't have any business in Russia or Ukraine right now, so we didn't have to make a, a big statement on that. We did shut down our Trans-Siberian Rail Service, where we were moving freight from China into Europe via the rail. Uh, we actually just felt really concerned that it was going to be totally unreliable and we would lose our customers' cargo. We haven't made a, any kind of ethical stance on that. We try to be apolitical as much as possible. I think as a logistics company, it's sort of our need to stay out of things. Even our humanitarian relief crisis, we're very clear we're not shipping anything military related. Right. We're not taking sides. We want to be neutral. That's a really important principle in humanitarian relief operations, because the moment you take sides, your workers and your nonprofits can be targeted uh, and considered operators of, in, a, in a war zone. And that's right. nothing to play around right. with. And I think one of one of an investor put it where you're kind of applying the startup mentality to logistics, especially with those humanitarian relief efforts. Ryan, thank you so much for being with us today. Hope to talk thank to you, you again soon and in person. Meanwhile, guys, more corporations continue to shut down operations in Russia. As we were just talking about, Google will no longer sell online ads in the country that follows similar moves by Twitter and Snap. And then Airbnb suspending all of its operations as well. That after the company said they were working with hosts around the world to provide housing for up to 100,000 refugees. Tech, back, tech Check is back in just a moment. One of the big corporate stories of the morning, Disney Plus planning to launch a cheaper ad-supported tier later this year. Our Julia Borston has more on what that means for the streaming ecosystem. Hi, Julia. Hi, Carl. That's right. Disney's cheaper ad-supported subscription option will launch in the U.S. later this year. Disney saying that this move is viewed as a building block in the company's path to achieving its long-term target of 230 to 260 million Disney Plus subscribers by fiscal 2024. Now, that's up from the roughly 130 million subs that it announced last quarter. Now, Disney currently charges $8 a month for its ad-free service. So how much lower will they go? The ad-supported options from Paramount, Discovery, and Peacock, which is owned by CNBC's parent company, NBC Universal, each of those are $5 a month. HBO Max's ad-supported version is $10 a month. Now, these ad-free options can yield higher average revenue per user. Peacock brought in nearly $10 per user per month last quarter that was driven largely by advertising. That's compared to the less than $7 a month for Disney Plus users in the U.S. and Canada. Now, this leaves Netflix as the last remaining pure play streamer without an ad-supported option. And at over $15 a month for its standard service, it is under pressure to keep adding content to justify the cost. But one reason Netflix may not want to move into this ad-supported option is because it doesn't have ad infrastructure like its streamer rivals do. Now, analyst Barton Crockett says that this makes all the sense in the world for Disney and could ultimately force Netflix into launching its own ad tier or doing a merger. The U.S. Mar he says, quote, the U.S. market is close to being saturated in terms of subs from broad services like Netflix. Advertising also nicely complements the other route to growth, which is subscription price hikes. You give people a way to avoid the price hike by accepting ads. Now, Crockett says that the longer Disney, sorry, longer Netflix 
ways to get into ads, the better its rivals such as Disney will get at selling ads and Netflix could fall further behind in that competition. Guys? Julia, I wonder, what, how do you think this is going to shift the balance of power in digital premium brand advertising, especially because you've got that rich Disney catalog that caters to kids and young people that I imagine advertisers would be very eager uh, to, to place their inventory against, and it's a, it's a known quantity. So who, who's threatened by that, and how much can it help Disney tap into uh, new segments that, that streaming hasn't been able to do at this scale before? Well, look, I think you're absolutely right. Disney said that one reason they're doing this is because advertisers have been clamoring for more ad inventory specifically against these premium brands. Streaming video ads are incredibly valuable and I would say most valuable as an alternative to TV advertising because they could be more targeted. The question is, of course, what does this mean for the digital duopoly? Google and Facebook, those are the two companies that can, I'm sorry, Meta, uh, parent company of Facebook, I'm going to keep making that mistake for a while. Um, Those are the two companies that control the majority of digital ad inventory. Now, of course, it's much easier to, to do, anyone can do an ad on those platforms, lower price point, but this does open the, the conversation about sort of how much Disney can use this to their advantage to sell cross-platform ads across their various properties. We've seen NBC Universal do that and really use Peacock to its advantage, the ability to target consumers across all of those different NBC Universal platforms. So I think this is great news for the digital ad ecosystem. There is this demand for in ad inventory. The more TV ratings decline, which is something we've been seeing um, as an ongoing trend, the more this digital ad inventory is increasingly valuable, John. You know, two things struck me, Julia. One was uh, Needham's Laura Martin, who's been begging Netflix to do this for a long time, and we'll see if she ends up being right. But the other is that doing this for Disney, uh, in terms of getting closer to their target, is a lot easier than broadening the spectrum of their content, because they're, they're still Disney, and they still have a brand framework to work within. That's that's 100% true, Carl. I mean, if you look at Netflix charging $15.50 a month for the standard service, they need to keep investing so much in content to justify that price point, which is over three times what you what you would pay for a, a Peacock with ads or, you know, some of these other services with ads. So, yes, th- this is so sort of a, a have and have nots here in terms of content. Disney could either try to ramp up the amount of content and get somewhere near um, what Netflix is doing if it wants to keep raising prices, or the other alternative is you offer an ad-supported version and, and you don't feel that same pressure to create this massive volume of content, and then Disney can maintain that sort of premium content feel, which is really what it's going for with the big focus on the brands such as Marvel and Star Wars. Yeah, that's it's fascinating in context of how this could change that content landscape. Julia, thank you so much. Still to come, the impact the Russia-Ukraine conflict is having on the chip sector. Stocks right now, they are off the lows of the day, but the Dow is still down more than 400 points. Tech Check is back in just a moment.
Welcome back. Let's get a gut check on Splunk. P.E. firm Hellman Friedman taking a 7.5% stake in the software maker for $1.4 billion. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Hellman Friedman now becomes the company's largest active shareholder. The news coming just days after Splunk beat the street in its Q4 earnings and announced the appointment of a new CEO on Wednesday. Shares higher this morning uh, by better than 4% on that report. Carl? Yeah. Meantime, John, want to check on Amazon as well. This report in the journal today saying the FTC has until mid-March to file a legal challenge against the purchase of MGM, uh, the movie and the TV studio. Otherwise, Amazon will be free to close the deal. We're going to monitor that for any developments. Stocks down about 2%. And the uh, Dow's down 418. Stay with us. Tech Check is back after this. As the fighting continues in Ukraine, the impact to the global economy is being felt in the supply chain and chip makers in particular. Christina Partsenevelis has more on the semis. Hey, Christina. Hi. The implications are broad, no doubt, and there will be pressure on the supply chain. But the chip sector is expected to have a minimal revenue impact so far of just 1% to 2%. And that's because Russia contributes a tiny fraction of global semiconductor sales, and no major chip giant is headquartered in either Ukraine or Russia. Of course, there are concerns about the supply of neon, for example. 90% of U.S.-grade neon, which is critical for lasers used in chips, comes from Ukraine. And then you've got palladium used to make electronic chips. 33% of global production actually comes from Russian mines. And palladium just continues to keep climbing up over, what, uh, year-to-date, 52% right now. But major players from Global Foundries, Intel and Micron all made statements assuring investors they could handle the risk after learning the hard way in 2014 after Russia's takeover of Crimea. Consensus is that stockpiles should last between six and eight weeks. But recent turmoil reinforces the commitment of the United States to regionalize supply chains amid growing geopolitical uncertainty, a trend likely to gain momentum and benefit American chipmakers. John? Christina? Great insight. Thank you. Thanks. Now, as we head to break, we also want to get a check on Microsoft. Down with the rest of the market, a bit more than the rest of the market, though. But today, officially closing its acquisition of Nuance, valued at nearly $20 billion. Tech Check is back after one more break. thing today and that is a look at the choppy trading for the nasdaq just this week losses totaling more than three percent a bunch of chinese names some uh, names like peloton among the big decliners for the last month stay at home and cloud stocks have been sinking zoom and twilio down more than 20 percent fastly down 40 after that big drop after results uh, the delivery sector feeling the pain as well uber just eat takeaway grab and dash all in the red, John. Uh, it's it's interesting. Just on a day where we're getting a lot of mandates begin to fall here in uh, New York City, schools are going to drop masks on Monday. A lot of these trades, even at transatlantic travel, was going to be a boon for airlines. And people are worried about that. Yeah. Uh, while you see domestically things opening up the, uh, on, on the international front, you still got that uncertainty just coming from a different place now. And we'll see as this season uh, unfurls what that means. Yeah. And some of those high growth names certainly taking ARC down with it. But two, one stock that is actually holding up in that high risk or that momentum category is Tesla. Bitcoin as well, uh, Carl, positive on the week. 
Yeah, and as for next week, it's going to continue to be busy. We're going to watch for talks, a new round earlier in the week, ECB meeting. CPI is going to have huge implications for inflation, uh, the Apple event, and then some analyst meetings like uh, eBay and GE. Uh, try to enjoy the weekend. Let's get to the judge and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.